Hi, welcome to Building a Business That Lasts. My name is Jay Owen, and I'm your host. On a quest towards stories, tips, and ideas that will help you grow a business without being stressed out, worn out, and ready to quit. Each week, I'll interview other business owners who have successfully grown businesses of all types for many years. It's my hope that these conversations will help you build a business that lasts. So one of my favorite ways to learn is through audiobooks, and I use audible.com for that. So what I'd like to do is give away a three-month membership to audible.com. I'm going to do that every single month uh, to somebody that's on our email list. So if you're not on our email list already, go to buildingabusinessthatlasts.com, plug in your email address. I promise I won't spam you. We'll send you one email a week announcing the new podcasts as they come out give you some information and links about those podcasts, and enter you in a chance to win that three-month membership to audible.com. So head over to our website, buildingabusinessthatlasts.com, plug in your email address, and we will get you entered for that contest. Good luck. On this episode, I interview Matt Baker from Thompson Baker Insurance Agency in St. Augustine, Florida. Uh, Thompson Baker has been around since 1925, so it's certainly a business that has lasted. Matt has been there since 1998, so uh, he's second generation in his family, been with the agency for a long time, and most recently has helped kind of navigate it through a major storm that happened here in St. Augustine, uh, Hurricane Matthew that came through the city and actually flooded the whole bottom part of their office, which they uh, are just now in the process of finalizing the renovations on that. So they had to deal with their own office being shut down at the time, along with transitioning and helping all of the people that were filing claims with their team internally. So really kind of an interesting story about how he's grown through the business over the years, how they've built an agency that has lasted the test of time. And I really hope this interview is helpful for you. Matt, if you would, just tell us a little bit about kind of how you started in the agency. Now, the agency's obviously this a little longer than that. You're, you're certainly not 100 years old. <laughs> but, uh, held up well. Yeah, if you, if you are, then that's pretty impressive. You held up really well. Give us some insight about kind of how you got into the industry to begin with and, and even maybe some backstory on the, the agency, kind of how it came about. Okay. Well, first of all, Jay, when you talk to people about how you come into a family-oriented business, a lot of people tend to th- think automatically that that was preordained, that a person was always on a track to join a, a business if they have a forebear or a family member that had been involved in it previously. That was not the case with me. It wasn't that I ever had any thoughts growing up that I would never join the, the insurance agency, but it wasn't it wasn't a given. It wasn't something. I mean, certainly I was around my dad a lot who came into the business in the early 70s after graduating from the risk management risk management department at Florida State University. He came into the agency business at a younger age than I ended up. Uh, so I was around it, but I never felt pressured to join the agency. I, I It wasn't unspoken or spoken overtly that, you know, when you get to this age, you are going to come into the business, etc. But as I finished my undergraduate career, I moved away for a little while. I actually lived in South America for about a year, Mm. and I was teaching English, mainly English as a second language, uh, not English literature. 
and then came back to the United States. I spent some time in graduate school at Florida and started thinking more about what I was going to do after getting out of school because at some, t- at some point you have to stop going to school and start <laughs> being an adult. So over time, it became pretty apparent that this was a good career opportunity. It was an opportunity to return to St. Augustine, which I, I, I love St. Augustine. I love other places as well, but having the opportunity to come back to St. Augustine was attractive. And having the opportunity to be a part of a small entrepreneurial business was appealing as well, including the appeal of the opportunity, if I did things right, maybe one day a seat into a leadership position. Certainly, it was never communicated that that was an assumption, and that's one thing that, in in hindsight, I feel very good about, that I, I really had to fail. I had to be in a position where I earned the right to be in the leadership position of the company. And how long uh, how long have you actually been at the agency then? I started in 1998. Okay, so, so you're talking about almost... Over 19 years. Yeah, almost two decades at this right. point. So that's one of the things I think that's most interesting to me uh, as we explore kind of the topic of this podcast is that idea of, you know, so many people start businesses or get involved in businesses. And, and we know statistically that the number that actually lasts past the first year is not very high, and past the fifth year is certainly not very high, and those that make it past a decade um, are, are in a minuscule percentage comparatively. And even those that do make it, many times, you know, a lot of times those are people that kind of almost own a job versus owning a business. And, and now you're at a point where, you know, you've been here for almost 20 years, so you've seen a lot of changes uh, both in the industry and in the city and uh, in the community. And what I'm curious about is if there's any particular things that kind of stood out to you as maybe difficult seasons for you personally in the agency and, and for the agency itself, and how you kind of overcame that. What, what kind of foundations I guess, as an organization do you have or have you had that kind of helped you get through you know, rougher seasons that we all have? Mm-hmm. I would say early on, and not right at the beginning, because when I joined the agency, I was in a customer service-oriented position. That, that was a job. It was a job that I took very seriously, but I was leading myself. I was, res- I was responsible for doing a good job in a fairly limited set of responsibilities. I didn't right. have leadership responsibility. But I came into a leadership position fairly early. About three years into it, I was put into a situation where I became more involved in operational leadership. In hindsight, it probably was a little too soon. I wanted it. Don't don't mistake me. I was ready to do that. But even having had a fairly fairly unique or non-standard leadership background, I did, as you know, I went to military school. Mm-hmm. So certainly that provided some some context for me in regards to leadership. I would have liked to have been better prepared. I thought I was adequately prepared, but that was a hard season because I was not obviously not as mature at that time from a leadership standpoint and a wisdom standpoint as I am now. And so I had a lot of learning to do with regard to team building, building teams, establishing 
cultural identity, which sounds a little counterintuitive because after all, we, even at that time, we had been around as a business for a long time. But anytime right. a, a new leader comes into play, comes to the fore, you have to reestablish culture and culture is constantly evolving and developing and advancing as well. So that was, that was difficult. I made a lot of mistakes with regard to not how I treated people as people. I've always had a pretty good idea of what is appropriate in doing that, but I was not mature as a leader or at least not as mature as I thought I was and had to learn how to lead through difficult circumstances with regard to, you know, actually leading people through making a lot of mistakes. Yeah, sometimes that's the, uh, that's the way we have to learn, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, one of the things you said was that you didn't feel like, you know, while you wanted to be that leader and you wanted to be in that position, you didn't feel like you were necessarily prepared, whether it was from a maturity standpoint or whatever else, even though you had had, you know, plenty of formal education and everything else at that point. What kind of things do you think either would have prepared you better or thinking about people, you know, that may be listening to this who are maybe not in a leadership role right now. Maybe they're in kind of a, a tactical kind of getting things done role, and maybe they're really good at it, but they have kind of this vision of, hey, what, what if I were to want to move up into a leadership place where instead of me just doing the things that are on my task list every day, I'm actually helping other people and empowering other people to do their jobs. What kind of things do you think are helpful for people and what would have been more helpful for you in that transition of going from showing up and doing the task list that's in front of me to how do I lead? I think more mentoring first first and foremost. I mean, it was a little bit of a unique situation at that point in time for us because in the position that we're speaking of, the intention was that I would basically serve as a, a protege for an operations manager that we had at the time. But Very, very early in that process, a job change occurred with that particular person where they had an opportunity to move. They were moving out of our agency. This particular person was moving out of of our agency. Very fine person that I really admired then and continued to admire now. They're retired, but they were were leaving the agency and uh, going into the banking industry, but there was a prescribed period of time where that person would help bolster my training. That did not occur because of an unforeseen job change that happened earlier than this person thought it would happen. And so I had been with the agency for three years, but I had been holding down a job for a service job. Sure. I hadn't had the opportunity to really serve as an understudy to someone who was leading the operation. So that was something that I had to overcome. I probably made more mistakes as a result of that, that a mentor could have said, hey, you know, you'll find yourself in this situation, look out for it, or here's what you do in this circumstance. So I learned by making the mistake. From that, that would be one of the things that I would advocate for people who are either in a position where they are cultivating younger generations of leadership, or conversely, the person that may be that younger generation, someone who thinks they'll accede into a leadership position, is that that mentoring needs to be there. Yeah. Uh, because otherwise, yeah. you're kind of throwing somebody into the deep end of the pool, or that person is the one being 
put into the deep end of the pool and uh, and forced to swim. It's much more helpful if there's some time given to to learn as a protege or an understudy to a mature, more mature leader. Yeah, I think that that's huge. I mean, for me, my uh, uncle was a big mentor for me when I was younger. I remember when I was about 12 years old, I was over at his house. I was wanting to start a lawn business. And he's like, well, you need a name that's memorable. And so he started kind of putting together some ideas. And I still remember scratching out on a piece of paper, and it was an acronym for my name, J-A-Y-S. And it was J's Action Yard Service. And ironically, that was actually the first flyer that I ever designed, uh, which kind of eventually mm-hmm. led to the design business and the agency world that I'm in now. So yeah. it's, it's kind of funny thinking back on those days. And there was a, a brief period of time for me, just thinking about mentorship, where I wasn't sure if my business was going to take off. I wasn't making much money. We wanted to have a family. We recently married, and, and I was going to go work for my uncle. And so I went and worked in the insurance business, ironically, um, not in the same side of the things as, as you. It was in the kind of large group health world. And I learned a lot, but that six months working kind of with him and under him were invaluable from a mentorship standpoint. Yeah. Because, you know, there are a lot of things you can learn and need to learn in traditional education. Yeah. But when you have to deal with that angry client that's calling in right. and you're the only one that has to deal with that person because everybody else gets to go, you know what? You need to talk to so-and-so. You need to talk to so-and-so until it finally gets to you. And there's really not much training for that. Like there's right. not a lot of books for it. There's not a, like you just sometimes have to do it. Yep. And and he let me shadow him on a lot of calls. I remember one time very specifically a lady called in and was upset about something. I don't even remember what she was upset about, but she was Livid. I mean, absolutely furious. And he was just so patient with her and just listened and listened and listened and calmly responded. And by the end of the call, she was, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I shouldn't, yeah. have, you know, shouldn't have lost it, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there were some legitimate things that needed to be fixed, but it wasn't worth kind of freaking out over. Right. But I, remember, I just remember that conversation. And, and then I think about that sometimes in my own situations because we all have you know, times where clients aren't happy for whatever reason, whether it's something we did or they did or something something between the both of us. And that mentoring time for me was just invaluable. And that's right. one of the reasons I want to do this podcast because I think that there's so much value for other people to be able to just hear from folks who have been through it before, mm-hmm. you know. And it's not the same as, as being a direct mentor and being with somebody every day and being able to shadow them and things like that. But my hope is that we can kind of get some insight together that will help. One of the things you hit on just kind of briefly was culture. And I know that's kind of a big buzzword kind of in society, and it's also extremely important to me. Uh, I think sometimes people kind of misinterpret what culture is a little bit. Like it's all like bean bags and, and foosball tables, mm-hmm. you know, because I think that's kind of the image that maybe Google's kind of given off. And I don't think that's what culture is. I think there's a lot more to it. So I'd love to kind of hear your perspective on, you know, what matters as far as culture from a team standpoint and and how you kind of view that within your own agency. Right. Culture, it's interesting you mentioned those external things that a lot of companies are doing now. And that's great. You know, it's it's great when you're big enough to have your own cafeteria and have, you know, five different kinds of, of Right. ethnic food offerings, <laughs> but a small insurance, independent insurance agent can't really get away with doing that. But but those are external things. Those are nice things, right. but, but they're external things. And certainly we try to do some of those things as, as well as an outcome of what our 
right. culture is right. or kind of a reinforcing of what our culture is. But we take it very seriously. We define it and we constantly talk about who we want to be from a cultural standpoint. And, and culture speaks to, you know, what kind of environment you want to have? What kind of ethos do you want to have as you work with clients, as you work with business partners, like, you know, we work together, for example. And then it speaks to the compatibility as you bring more teammates into the business. What does that look like? What, what dispositionally is that person like? What is important to them? What kind of organization do they see themselves being at day in and day out? Because as you know, and I know we'll talk about family considerations as mm -hmm. well, but this is where we spend the majority of our time as professionals, at least as much time as we do in a family sure. context in a lot of cases. So, you know, it's important. And that was one of the things that I, I learned early on and I'm still in process of learning, but, you know, compat cultural compatibility from the standpoint of who you're bringing into the organization, how we're executing on accountability and sending that message is, is very, very important. And I think one of the things, you know, as it relates to culture, you talked about a little bit was values and it's difficult because it's not like you want, and you definitely don't want, actually, a team full of clones, no, right? Like, no. we, we want diversity of all types of thinking and thought and process because it adds value to have different, when you're brainstorming around a table, it adds value to not all think the same way. Right. Um, but at the same time, there have to be kind of core principles or core values that that everybody, to some extent, agrees on or kind of operates within that kind of drive you back to. So one of the things that I have been really passionate about last couple of years with all kinds of business owners is talking through kind of the whole mission, you know, vision and values type things, you know, and everybody has a different word of how they phrase some of those pieces. And for a long time, we didn't have a mission statement. We didn't have core values. We didn't have any of those things for us and started to develop them. And it was interesting because it just gives us a cornerstone to kind of lean back on as far as when a decision comes down to the wire and you're not sure what the decision is, you can often look at the mission or the values and make the decision based off of that right. at that point sometimes. So well, how do you guys be. handle that from like a, a mission standpoint, a value standpoint? You know, how, how have you kind of developed those things over the years and how do they influence your agency? Well, we, do, we define our core values pretty simply and succinctly into five things. We're focused on professionalism, we're team-oriented, we're growth-oriented, meaning we want to grow as individuals and as people, and as that happens, that's going to be accretive to the organization. We are humbly confident, and we very much prize seeking out and doing the right thing. And so we talk about those values in staff meetings. We talk about those tenets when we are interviewing people, when we are reviewing people. And that's how we locate how we are doing things. And, you know, to your earlier point, Jay, when you talk about culture, culture, culture is basically making sure that there's consensus on 
who we want to be as an organization. And it doesn't speak to, well, one person is introverted and one person is extroverted or right. one person likes rock and one person likes classical music. You're right. You need to have a type of environment that allows for free expression and creativity. Whether it's the insurance business, which is probably a, a little less creative in its demands <laughs> than what sure. you do, you know, media. But having said that, you're saying that there are some core principles that are non-optional. This is how we're going to operate. And we all need to, to row in the same direction on that. And, you know, if somebody doesn't want to be a part of that, then that's fine. You can make a decision to, to mutually not be a part of, of one another's lives, yeah. so to speak. And, and I can't overemphasize the value of this, I think, for people that, that may be listening to this podcast. Having those core values written down, that everybody knows them, there's no ambiguity about them, they're simple, they're, they're, not, they're not these long, complex you know, stories, they're, they're one, two, three words, you know, very simple. They really provide a cornerstone when you're hiring, like you said, both when you're hiring team members and when clients are coming in. Because like for us, we have our core values written up on a wall right when you walk in the office. And I think it sets the stage for the expectation. And it also, even for me, is kind of that grounding block of looking back at those values some days and going, are we lining up with that? Right. Like, are we who we say we are? You right. know? And if we're not, let's course correct a little bit. Right. You know? Or if that value is not what we believe anymore, why don't we believe it? And should it change? Because I think that some businesses do have values, especially when they've been in this for a long time, decades, there can be things that maybe they add to it or adjust it over time. But for the most part, these are kind of cornerstone principles that, that aren't going to change that often. Right. The book that I read years ago um, by Dave Ramsey, uh, Entree Leadership, was the kind of thing that finally pushed me over the edge of, of putting together those mission and values. Uh, and their team does a great job of that. We hit a little bit on hiring. And I think that that's an area where, especially as small businesses start to grow, you know, many businesses start as one or two people, and, and, and they operate like, like I operated like that for a long time. Then I had contractors, and then I finally started to bring on those first employees uh, about a decade ago. And, and I learned a lot of things the hard way when hiring. So I'd be curious, like your thought process, when you've, you've realized, okay, we really need a new team member, mm-hmm. how do you define the details of what you need in that role, kind of what that seat is, if you will, before that person even even comes in. And then once you start to collect resumes and start to do interviews, what's your process like and and how do you kind of work through that to to help try and get the right person in the door? Because once you have the wrong person in the doors, it can create all kind of mess, which anybody that's been in business long enough has has done that at least a few times. Right. So how do you go about hiring and what's, what works well for you in those areas? Well, I've certainly learned in the school of hard knocks because I've made a lot of wrong hiring decisions and inevitably will continue to, you know, every now and then, but probably with much lower frequency than I have in the past. And I, that's not to mean that early on every decision that I made was a bad decision, but I've learned a lot by making a lot of mistakes. Getting back to the core values, a person has to be a a match in core values. And so whomever is responsible, if we're faced with the situation of of needing another person in a a particular position, those that are responsible for that 
first and foremost, have to be attuned to whether or not this person, and we do our best to tease this out in the interview process, if this person is a match with those five things that I mentioned, if they are devoted, if they're the type of people that are going to be devoted to those core values, then we think about the position itself, which is described through job description, and we judge it based on whether a person gets the position, they understand it, and they understand not just the, the technical aspects of doing the position, all that it entails from a service standpoint or a sales standpoint, but they get it as it links up with our core value set and what our purpose is. And our purpose is a companion piece, obviously, to the core values. We are, to paraphrase, our purpose is to create generations of advocates for our business, people who, you know, will stay with us for a long time because they prize who we are and what we're doing for mm -hmm. them. So a person has to get it in that regard. They ha And they have to want it secondarily. They have to get that and then say, yes, that's me. I want to do that. And then they have to have the capacity to do it. Um, and a lot of times that's the capacity to learn it because very frequently we bring people into the organization that don't have an insurance background and that's totally fine. People sure. have to start somewhere. I did. So we're not necessarily hiring somebody that has worked for another agent or for State Farm or something like that for five years so they all already have some kind of technical background. It's kind of that attitude over aptitude. It's more the capacity to learn. Sure the technical part, and it's the capacity to be that person from an intangible standpoint that we are saying someone needs to be in any of our positions. So, I mean, it sounds like what I'm hearing is one of the main attributes really for any hire is that they are teachable. I mean, I think yes. somebody being teachable is huge because we live in a world that's changing so fast that even, even people that do have a lot of experience sometimes, I mean, especially in my industry, when we're dealing with you know, social media and the internet and, and all those kinds of things. I mean, 10 years ago, the iPhone didn't exist, mm -hmm. you know. Um, when, when I started design extensions, Google was just an idea, you know. It, it was an idea. Well, it was a business, but it was barely a business. Yahoo was the king of the internet. Nobody was going to supplant Yahoo, you know, and, and Google was just a couple of college kids in their dorm room. And now they're one of the largest companies in the world. Yeah. And that was you know, less than 20 years ago. Like, yeah. I mean, that's crazy, the rate at which technology is growing. And even now, you know, you look around the number of people on their iPhones that can get any information at any point at an ultra-fast speed just about anywhere. It's changed everything. You know, it's changed how we market. It's changed how we communicate, for better or for worse sometimes. But I think that ability to be teachable as a hire is, is just huge because no matter how many interviews you do, I feel like you can never really know what you're getting from a, a right. team member standpoint until they're actually plugged in. You can get as many references as you want. You can do as many interviews as you want. I think doing a lot of that is valuable. I think it's, you know, one interview is usually a mistake. You usually need a couple of follow-ups. Mm -hmm. and But at the same time, even after all of that, sometimes you just don't know. Or over time, sometimes those seats change of what you need. If they can't adjust to kind of fit in the seat that you need as a company, that can be hard too. Yeah. One of the things that I... I was smiling a little bit as you were talking about those three things about kind of getting it, wanting it, and having the capacity for it because that's very similar to what is in traction. 
Yes. And I'm assuming that's kind of where you yes. get that methodology from. So we haven't talked about that in this podcast, but you and I have talked about that a little bit before. That's a book that I just recently read probably six months ago. And, and if you haven't seen it before, Traction is a book by a guy named Gino Wickman. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, it, it's a very tactical kind of book about all the things that I'm actually really bad at, which is structure and process and organization and how to kind of put things together in a way that will kind of give you a grip on your business and help you move forward. And one of the things they talk about is is kind of once you define that role, how you fit somebody in it, and those those three things are kind of That's from that. That's where it comes from. So yeah. I was just curious. The next That kind of segues into the next question I was going to ask, which is in your own, you know, ongoing learning and needing to be, you know, teachable yourself uh, of continually progressing, not just in continuing education from an industry standpoint, but as a leader, you know, Traction has been a great resource for me recently, but what other, you know, resources, maybe it's a book or an author or a podcast or, or uh, you know, somebody else that you follow that's a resource for you in your kind of own personal development and growth, which kind of ties in with one of your core values too. Mm-hmm. Well, I read a lot, and I'm glad I do. Uh, and that would be one of my recommendations uh, for leaders is to really find sources like this. We talked about traction just now. I go back to, and I've been helped by so many different things. I don't read a lot of blogs. I have started a little bit. I'm, I'm, and this is, I'm just scratching the surface, but I've started to, to listen to Timothy Ferris a little bit, his podcasts about where he's interviewing people that have been very, very successful in a particular discipline and what their traits and, and mindsets are. But I go back to when I think about impact, I immediately thought about the Jim Collins book, Good to Great, Mm -hmm. which has informed so many other things. There are heavy influences of Good to Great in Traction, for example. And the thing that I like about that book, and I think that actually came out in 1998 as well, so it's, Mm. it's almost 20 years old now, if I have my dates correct. It is very empirical in its approach and when you read about their methodology, it really, that's something that resonated with me. But the outcome very much follows that adage that the numbers are merely indicators of human behavior. Yeah, that's right. The data is an indicator of human behavior. That's where they started in their research. But the upshot of it, or what they get as an outcome, is that, you know, here is what made these numbers. Here are these companies that made a transition from, you know, being in existence for a while and maybe in some cases being good, but then becoming great and great by a a defined standard. So I have always loved that book. It's a book that I go back to. It's transcendent. It's obviously written with a business theme, but it really speaks to any kind of it speaks to organizational excellence in any field, whether it's business or educational, anything. So I've always liked it. I love Jim Collins and one of his most recent, or more recent books, I should say, uh, that kind of ties in with kind of some of the thought process behind this podcast is How the Mighty Fall. Yes. And what's interesting about that to me, and I think it's good for us all to remember, 
especially you know some people that may be listening to this podcast that, that have been in business for a long time already. Like they've already kind of lasted the test of time and they're just kind of gaining more insight because I find that people that have lasted that test are usually the ones that are kind of continuing education more than anybody else sometimes because that's how they got there in the first place was a lot of reading and research and knowledge. But I think that that book's a good reminder that you're never too big to fail. Correct. And you are never too smart to get it wrong, um, to not get it wrong. And there's there's example after example, especially in my technology world, from Yahoo to AOL, mm-hmm. you know, uh, or even uh, you know companies like Blockbuster. Like mm-hmm. you look at a company like Netflix, who started as a DVD delivery service, and just annihilated Blockbuster. But interestingly, Netflix is a great example of a company that stayed on its heels or toes because if they had not continued to pivot as a business, Redbox would have beat them. Mm-hmm. Because I can go up to just about any corner you know, in any city now and get a, a movie DVD out of a box yeah. the same day for $1.50. And return it wherever you want to. And take it back wherever I want. Why in the world would I wait for Netflix to send me a DVD? Yeah. And so Redbox could have killed Netflix, but instead they continued to shift and pivot and create this online environment now, which is as popular or more popular than all of the major TV networks combined, yeah. which is amazing. They're spending something like $6 billion this year on creating new content because yeah. they continued to pivot. Like They're such a great story. I could do a whole show just yeah. on them. Yeah, I know they continued to pivot to the point where you know they... They couldn't get the content they wanted from the major producers for the right price, so they were like, well, we'll just make it ourselves. Yeah. And now people you know, subscribe to Netflix just to watch the shows that Netflix created that you can't get anywhere else. Yeah. Like, What a great model of a company who's, who's looking back at themselves and going, how can we do this better? I don't care how we did it last year. I don't care how we did it five years ago. I don't care how we did it 50 years ago. How can we do it better today? Yeah. And I think that that's something that any business that has lasted – that I know, like that's what they do. They are constantly not necessarily looking at their competition, but looking at themselves and saying, how can we get better? Like, how can we serve our customers better? How can we be better for our team? How can we, you know, produce a better product or better result or, or, or just treat people better? Yeah. And when you keep doing that constantly, you don't end up on that list like Blockbuster and Yahoo and AOL. Yeah. Um, but none of us want to be on those lists. That's right. We're almost out of time, but I want to hit on one last thing because I know family is important to you and it's important to me. And, and kind of the subtitle of, of the book that I'm working on in this podcast is you know building a business that lasts without sacrificing family. And right. I think that that is really hard because, at least for me, I certainly have gone through periods. I, I consider myself a recovering workaholic, mm-hmm. and it's not bad to work hard. It's not bad to work a lot. But how do you get to that point where you're able to do that and still have a family with young kids? Because I know Mm -hmm. you've got young kids. Mm -hmm. Well, I've always considered myself fortunate because when I go home and I'm, you know, I certainly have a real robust work schedule, but I don't continue a lot of my work at home Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, if I get home at you know, seven or seven thirty or something like that. I continue to work the phones and right. stuff like that. Now what I do, and it's just because I like to do it, I will read a lot of stuff. So a lot of the professional reading that I do, that I learn from, gain insight from, you know, I'm doing that after I after my wife and I put our kids to bed. But that I enjoy that. Sure. It doesn't feel like work to me. So 
I mean, you know us well, Jay. We're we're always busy under normal circumstances, but right now we have a very entrepreneurial thing going on, which is the starting of a new private school that has placed a lot of heavy demands on us as well. Sure. But we, you know, we balance, we manage it. You know, I'm a little bit uh, circumspect about the term work-life balance because at some point, I mean, it's just life. Right. That's right. You know, it's life. When you start thinking about work-life balance, then I think it's easy for the mind to start thinking, well, is it Mm 50-50 or does it need to be 60-40 or whatever? And sometimes there will be those seasons where, there, there's just more to be done. I find that if you value your family, it's not hard to figure out how to spend time with mm-hmm. your family over the long haul. Maybe you have a real busy week, but then, you know, you, you plan vacations. And I, like you are, I'm very attuned to participating things that my kids or attending things that my kids are participating in, you know, sports, going to flag football games and things like that. That's just important to us as a family. So we make that happen. And if I have to, you know, get a little up a little earlier the next day, then, then so be it. But we've managed that pretty well. And we manage it within the context of my wife being involved with the airline as well, which, you know, is a little bit of a unique a challenge, but also opportunity because sometimes she's gone for a few days at a time. And, and, you know, here I am, I'm running a business and doing some other things, but also have to play Mr. Mom, Sure, which is fun. You just adapt to it. And mm-hmm. I, I think you have to, you know, you be have to be flexible, but you have to make it important. And I think, you know, one of the things I love that you said there, because this is actually a chapter in the book that I'm working on, is that it's not a work-life balance, it's a blender. Right. Like it's all just, it's just in there. Like you said, it's just life. Right. And, and for me, the biggest thing that has been helpful is just setting expectations and communi- yeah. and clear communication, especially between me and my wife, you know, but even me, me and my team with work, me and my wife, me, me and clients, like those expectations, the more clear the expectations are ahead of time and the more clear the communication is that bridges those expectations together, the more comfortable people are in, in whatever the scenario be. Cause I'll, I'll have some seasons where, you know, I'm, I'm spending a lot of hours on work and mm-hmm. I'll have others where I'm not spending as many hours on work and, and communicating that clearly for me uh, and our family has been, been a huge asset. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we are out of time, but I really appreciate your Thank time you. and great. your insight. Uh, I'm excited to continue to have story after story of different people who have been in business for a long time and kind of lasted the test of time. I hope that these just stories and thoughts and tips and insights of, of all of our successes and failures and things we have done that worked well and things we've done that not, have not worked well are helpful for those of you that are listening. If you uh, haven't had a chance already, go to our website at buildingabusinessthatlasts.com and uh, put your email address in there. You'll get notified when new podcasts roll out. And uh, thanks for checking us out. Well, I don't know about you, but it's pretty neat to hear from somebody at a company that's been around since 1925. Not a whole lot of companies last through time like that. And so I think it's always valuable to kind of hear stories and tips and ideas from those kind of folks. I hope that's been helpful for you. If you want to learn more about Thompson Baker, their agency, and about Matt, uh, you can check them out online at thompsonbaker.com. This podcast is sponsored by Design Extensions. 
Design Extensions is a full-service digital marketing agency that provides marketing strategy, website, and design services that help others grow their business. If you're looking for help in achieving your marketing goals, growing your business, improving your website, or upgrading your image, make sure to check out Design Extensions at designextensions.com. I hope this episode has given you some ideas or inspiration that will help you grow your business. If you found it helpful and you know somebody else who might benefit from it as well, I would greatly appreciate it if you would take the time to share this with them, maybe on Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn, or even shoot an email over to a friend uh, with a link to this podcast in it. And if you haven't already, make sure you sign up for our email list at buildingabusinessthatlasts.com.